Today's reading is Philippians 1, 27 to 30. It can be found on page 1085 of the Bibles, next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Whatever happens, as citizens of heaven, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together with the one accord for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, may we experience you as gracious this morning which means um, always that we have to confront some of the trouble in our life and some of the trouble in this world because your grace is a response to trouble. And all of us sit here, from, we walk in from different places, a lot of us don't know each other, and we may think we're the only one sitting here with all kinds of doubts, or we may think we're the only one sitting here um, in such utter pain or loss, or, or we may just think, you know, how rare, I'm, we're sitting here and we're so thankful today. So grateful, so joyful, and the truth is we're all sitting here in the same condition, more troubled um, and more of a mess than we want other people to know. But you're a gracious God who says that in Christ at the same time we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. So may you speak to us in our trouble with your grace through these words. Amen. Um, have you ever had one of those moments where you realize the level to which we are able to try to orchestrate comfort in our life, orchestrate and calibrate our lives to the finest detail um, to keep difficult things away, perhaps? I had one of those moments, um, I'm painting the outside of my house, and you know, just one of those moments where you realize what it means to be in our culture in this time of history, that I, that I can go to this store and, and choose from the thousands of different shades of colors for the paint from the outside of my house, and then I can get any quantity of it made for me within 10 minutes, that, oh, you know, it'll be done in 10 minutes. Do we realize how incredible that is? But that's not even enough, because then you've got to choose from the five different brands of paint that they offer in the four different sheens that it could be in. You know, you want satin, you want gloss, you want flat, you want... So, you, I mean, I had, you know, I had this moment sitting there like, this is amazing. And, and we get wrapped up in caring so much that we, you know, we make this our, we make some of this minutiae of comfort and perfection, our life, calibrating our life towards our security and our comfort. You have these kinds of moments. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments. One author named Richard Foster uh, did this in a very clever way, and he said um, in a book he was writing in 1985, he said, um, uh, the very fact that you were able to purchase this book probably puts you among the world's wealthy. I love that sort of like, gotcha, <laughs> you can't deny that. Um, 
And, and so then as you think about that, you think about this is sort of unique to our culture, to our world, perhaps your world. Another writer talks about this book that we're looking at, the, uh, the Epistle to the Philippians, and says something very, very difficult to hear in a sense. The joy of the Lord, which the letter of the Philippians is filled with a theology of the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord, or even the desire for that joy, seems to be a rare commodity in contemporary Western culture. Even among devoted Christ followers, how many congregations can you name whose life together exudes effervescent joy? Good word. Um, I think city life, by the way. Good job. You know, that, that the welcome time we just had, that was very effervescent. However you say it, effervescent. But then this quote, this, this kind of like, kind of put you in a corner kind of quote right here. The transformative power of Christian joy, even resurrection joy, has little impact on a self-contented life. That's kind of one of those quotes and one of those ideas that sort of stirs you out of your slumber and to wonder, is everything really as cozy and good as I'm imagining it? And we do kind of imagine it. Um, Bill Hybels, pastor of a big, big church out in the Chicago area, he says, "Um, there is a basic assumption that most of us have about material things. The more we have, the happier we will be. It is pretty common for us to think that more money will improve our quality of life. The more stuff we have, the more content we will be. Or so we think. In all of this, we have a deep inner sense that contentment is possible. It can be attained. We just are not sure exactly how to get there from here. And maybe like, um, like John Calvin, the Reformation theologian, who I'm going to be quoting uh, several times uh, today because of his insight on this topic, maybe have we become a little bit like he describes? He says, the same thing happens to meddlesome horses. If they are fattened in idleness for some days, they cannot afterward be tamed for their high spirits, nor do they recognize their rider whose command they previously obeyed. Now, I don't know anything about horses, (laughs) but I could say that I think that describes a dynamic that we have to just at least be curious about and wonder about with all of the choices to build a comfortable life today. And the truth is we often act like we um, we are so shocked and scandalized and surprised when difficulty comes into our life. Like, what? What is this? It's not what I was expecting. How could this happen? How could I not get what I wanted and what I was planning for? The scripture, the gospel in the New Testament actually sells this idea pretty hard. In those last words of what Edie was reading in Philippians chapter 1, it says, For it has been granted, that's like language of a gift, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You catch the sense of normalizing struggle in the Christian life? If you want it even more blunt and something that really gets our number well, Peter says the same thing. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I love that. That just gets our number exactly. We act as if, what is this foreign thing? This difficult. I didn't plan this. My life wasn't supposed to have this going on right now, this loss, this pain, this struggle. 
And he goes on to say, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. You, know, has that, you sense the transition there from shock and surprise to sort of normalizing and saying, this, there's something actually beneficial, there's something actually good here. I don't know what, but supposedly, according to Peter and Paul, this is, you sense the transition. Have you made that transition? Has the absolute terror you have about something awful happening in your life, have you lost that just total fear, that total paralyzing fear that maybe something awful is going to happen? And maybe, um, maybe in the midst of your pain at some point in your life, or maybe many times in your life, if you're not you know, in your early 20s, pretty much beyond that, you're going to begin to have these experiences. Maybe you have, maybe you've had several where uh, in your pain, you actually saw how you met God more than you ever had before. Maybe like um, some people, when we do in the discipleship group dive that I lead where everybody tells their story, maybe like these stories often come out, maybe your, your big story that you look back on actually is punctuated. The, these, these moments of like actually, um, the peak moments of faith actually are in the valleys of difficulty in your life. You tell your stories by those points of pain and difficulty and suffering. Because that's actually where God was and God met you. Maybe like Sarah Miles who writes this great book that I'm still just kind of slowly making my way through. She has this great, great quote where she's praying with this couple and she, um, and she alludes to this concept. She, she clearly has made this transition in uh, viewing difficulty. She says, God, thank you for healing, for new life after all, and thank you especially for the dark years. Thank you for everything that works in the dark. Has that happened? Has that transition happened where you actually, you actually have so much of God in your life? You've connected with it so much. It's settled your heart so much that, some, that struggle, you begin to view struggle differently. That you actually, what the gospel does is it, it turns uninvited struggle and puts it into a new light. So the gospel puts uninvited struggle into a new light, and it makes voluntary struggle a new possibility. And that's exactly what I want to organize just two brief thoughts about struggle and how this works from the gospel. First of all, that it puts uninvited struggle in a new, life, new light. And most of what we deal with is uninvited struggle, the unexpected, it happens. Again, John Calvin, as he um, writes about this, he has a section of, a, um, of his book of theology called The Christian Institutes. He has this whole section on how, talking about how the Christian life is best described as self-denial. You want the key, you want the principle of how kind of the Christian life exudes and, and blossoms in someone's life, self-denial. And, and so he's talking about all of this and he says... Um, how necessary this disposition will appear when you weigh the many chance happenings, chance happenings, to which we are subject. Various diseases repeatedly trouble us. Now plague raises, now we are cruelly beset by the calamities of war. Now ice and hail, consuming the year's expectation, leading to barrenness, which reduces us to poverty. 
Wife, parents, children, neighbors are snatched away by death. Our house is burned by fire. He says, it is on account of these occurrences that people curse their life, loathe the day of their birth, abominate heaven and the light of day, rail against God, and as they are eloquent in blasphemy, accuse him of injustice and cruelty. He says, but in these matters, this is a shocking, this is a shocking transformation that, that's suggested by the gospel, but in these matters, the believer must also look to God's kindness and truly fatherly indulgence. We have all been working, and we we all work day in and day out, mostly with this inbuilt assumption that success and comfort in this world around us are what reflects spiritual blessing. That comfort and our plans to succeed, that that is the better way for our life to go. And we actually, this is probably true of you, you probably, if you really sat down and and could somehow calculate it, you probably spend a disproportionate amount of time, like I do, praying, if you you pray, praying for comfortable, struggle-free circumstances. How often often do your prayers reflect that kind of a vibe? In... And the gospel actually just shifts us to a whole different view, to a whole different way of praying. As John Calvin puts it, the, those kinds of comforts and those struggle-free existence is, is the shadowy and fleeting allurements of this present life. And God's there to scatter the allurements that becloud us. And, and, and I love the, um, the two analogies that uh, Calvin uses as he talks about this. So more Calvin coming here. But I love this. These two pictures are wonderful. First of all, he calls God the heavenly physician. God is like a doctor. Don't you love it when you have some ailment that you don't don't know what it is? It's like a soreness or it's a rashy thing or something's going on. And it seems like, oh, that should be, you know, that has some clear symptoms there. I should be able to go online now with WebMD and everything else. I should be able to figure this out quite quickly. And you go on there and, and you spend a couple hours and you're no more clear on what, What's going on? I mean, there's just so many options out there. You walk into a doctor. I don't know if you've ever had this. Maybe you haven't. You've had the opposite. I've had this experience. You walk in. Maybe I have one of my kids with me and they got some rash or something. You walk in, and I mean, within five minutes, the doctor knows exactly what this is. Oh, yeah, this, is this time of year, this goes around, and that's, oh, this happened. Oh, were they doing this? Oh, well, then, yeah, then it's... A, and, I mean, you're just like, whoa, I was online for two hours. The, the, you know, the doctors, let's give some credit to doctors. You know, this is how God is described, as this physician who knows our ailments so deeply. And this is, I mean, it's difficult to hear. And it challenges your idea of God, if I can come up with it. But this is how he describes the great physician. It's my favorite song, by the way. <laughs> The Lord himself, according as he sees it expedient, confronts us and subjects and sustains our unrestrained flesh with the remedy of the cross. <laughs> like medicine. And this he does in various ways, in accordance with what is healthy for each person. For not all of us suffer in equal degree or in the same diseases or, on that account, need the same harsh cure. <laughs> calls it a cure. 
the difficulty you're going through in your life right now might be curing you. Just think about it that way. From this, it is to be seen that some are tried by one kind of cross, others by another. But since the heavenly physician treats some more gently but cleanses others by harsher remedies while he wills to provide for the health of all, he yet leaves no one free and untouched because he knows that all, to a person, are diseased. Is it possible? That, I mean, we are scandalized by this concept that difficulty and struggle might, might be at the heart of knowing God and where God meets us the most because our lives are so oriented towards pushing it away. But even more so, that it's like, it's like functions like this incredible, perfect cure when someone finally diagnoses our biggest need. Is that possible? So that's analogy number one. The second one is of a parent. John Calvin talks about um, God being like a parent. And this, of course, comes out of the Bible. You've seen passages like um, Proverbs 3. Um, uh, Proverbs 3, where is it? It says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or grow weary when he reproves you. For whom God loves, he rebukes and embraces as a father his son. My children, I have uh, four children, and I mean, how many times in my life does it happen that um, we have one of these exchanges where I'm like, you know, I'm sorry, I'm the grown-up, and this is what, you know, this is what you're not going to be able to do, or this is what you are going to have to do. And man, you'd think I was killing them. Oh, that's awful, that's terrible. My kids think I, I exist to make their life miserable. Because, you know, just think about it. Maybe if you're not a parent yet, you know, you're going to have to fight these battles where they go to a friend's house and they're watching, maybe watching whatever they want on whatever media screen or whatever, and they come back to my house and it's like, no, we have these little calibrated little hour, you know, one hour a day this or whatever, you know, all these little things you set in place. And you say, that's because I know things you don't know. That's because I, I, I am showing my love to you right now. They roll their eyes. <laughs> you're killing me. That's what they think. Do you see the connection to difficulty in our life? This is going to kill me. This is terrible. Get this away. You know, we've all gotten mad at God. Why are you doing this to me? This is terrible. I love you. I know so much more than you, and I just love you so much. This is, gonna, this is actually me doing my job to raise you and to, to have you turn into this amazing person that you're going to be. So there's a, so maybe these, I mean, I think this like, concept of normalizing struggle is so hard for us to grasp in our world today. Maybe some of these pictures help us just a little bit and help us to change our praying in a sense. Because the, if you know God and if you know the, the gospel, if it is connected in the goodness, the deep goodness and reality of having God answer your deepest needs, your true deepest needs through what Jesus has done on the cross, then you pray a certain way. If you don't have that at the center of your life, you, you pray, you direct your prayers for the struggles to end and for them to stay far, far away. But it, once the gospel sets, a transition happens. There's an author named Carl Daw, Carl P. Daw Jr. And this is, listen in on this, um, at this song that he wrote. So it's basically like a, a, a poem. Save us, O God. Now think of this. Do you pray this way about your difficulties? Save us, O God, from frantic hearts. Unleash our lives from greed's grim arts. Reform us from our envious bent and teach our souls to be content. 
held like a child serene and sure, whom on its, mother's, on its mother rests secure. May we rely on you alone and know our life to be your own. That's a massive transition to embark upon. But it goes even farther. Because I, I still haven't caught the second part of this message, which is that uh, knowing God and knowing the gospel and having it in your life makes voluntary struggle a new possibility. I mean, it's bad enough that I said, let's rethink and let's not have such a terrible idea of the difficulty that's in our life. Maybe, maybe even God is doing something there. It's bad enough to, to believe that. It's hard enough, let alone to say, Volunt-? I, think I, I think, Mark, I think you said voluntary there. I don't know if I'm ready for that. Listen to this. John Bailey writes a prayer book that I, um, kind of like a prayer for the morning and evening for a whole month. And this is in his prayer. He, he prays, he says, for all who have taken up their own crosses and have followed him. And then he adds, for all suffering freely chosen for noble ends. Let's say that again. For all suffering freely chosen for noble ends, for pain bravely endured, for temporal sorrows that have been used for the building up of eternal joys, I praise and bless thy holy name. See, now we've moved into a whole new level of prayer. Praying actually about volunta- voluntary, freely chosen difficulties? How can that be? Why would, anybody want it? Why would anybody want to keep the doors and windows of their life open to difficulties that might blow in? Why would you? Close those windows. Close those doors. Isn't that what we do? Why? I think that the natural, if, if somebody just walks into a, you know, a church and hears religious people talking about the, the benefit of suffering or difficulty, or even taking some on willingly, I think the, the, the common view we would bring is we say, well, that must mean religious people think if I do some hard stuff, it'll balance out the, you know, kind of the self-absorption of the rest of my life the self-comforting that I do in all of the realms. Maybe I need to do some really hard stuff and endure some, some suffering, some lashes. Maybe I need to bear a cross a little bit to kind of balance out the scale. Or maybe God, maybe it's a way of getting a, getting a sticker, you know, from God. Getting a, a ribbon or a button that says, good job, terrific. You did some hard stuff and you did it for me. Now you're welcome. Now you're a little closer to me. Now you can have some assurance. I think that is like mostly all our minds can do to try to wrap, wrap our intelligence around this idea that you would even walk into voluntary difficulty and suffering. And yet that doesn't, that, that actually reverses it. You know, our natural bent is to say, we, we have to somehow do something to work our way to God. Maybe we have to take on difficulty. We need to like hit ourselves and beat ourselves and then we'll get some comfort and closeness to God. Maybe then we'll taste the treasure and get in good with God. The gospel works in reverse. You're given a gift of being in good with God. And that is so good and that settles all those needs that are agitating that have you going out trying to calibrate your savings account and your retirement and your schedule and your planning and your rental property and everything else that you're calibrating for your security because you're, you're insecure about your treasure in this world. The gospel settles that treasure and you look on all those comfort producing things that you've been spending your time on and, and you realize those shouldn't matter as much. There might be a lot of good in those things and it's not always just like throw them all out the window because you don't need them anymore. 
but has your heart shifted? That's what the gospel does. It works in reverse of what we would think. We're not a place to say, oh, you know, I did some great suffering this week and I'm pretty sure, you know, let's put the chart up and give me a couple X's up there because I did a good job and I'm getting closer. No. Maybe talk about, and we've had this before, come up here and talk about the struggles you've gone through as a way of giving glory to God of, that your heart is not completely crushed by it because you have another treasure at work. In the book of Philippi, I don't know if you noticed the first part of that reading talked about a heavenly citizenship. Whatever happens as citizens of heaven live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I think the, the, the word heaven is a little distracting there because you might think that what I'm going to say is that, again, suffer so that you get some reward of heaven. But when it talks about heavenly stewardship, Paul's doing, or heavenly citizenship, Paul's doing something kind of sneaky because he's writing to this group of people that live in Philippi, which is a Roman colony, and it means the culture there, just like we have a culture of kind of security and stability and structuring things and getting the right color paint and all that kind of stuff. We have that culture of security, and they have this culture of Roman citizenship. The co- this Roman colony of Philippi was filled with people who had put their hope and security in being a citizen of Rome. If you know the, the book of Acts, which we just had some sermons from, at one point... They're about to give Paul a beating and he turns and says, are you allowed to do this to a Roman citizen? And the guards, they, they kind of freak out and they say, wait, I pay, and one of them says, I paid a lot for my citizenship. You know, they're about to do something illegal. And he calls them on it, I paid a lot for my... They, this was a hugely valuable thing and it had perks and it was the security and the stability. And Philippi would be a place where a, a military general who had lived, a, you know, had done his duty and was a Roman citizen was stationed to a cush job in Philippi to live out his days with his family and enjoy creature comforts. Philippi was a place of creature comforts, of stability, of affluence, of comfort. And they've put their hope in being citizens of Rome and all the perks that came along with it. And Paul says, whatever happens as citizens of heaven? See what he does there? That's a great thing for him to say because it's so true. What are you wrapped up in? What kind of in are you hoping for that'll settle things? You have something way better that settles you completely in all aspects of your life. This is about the gospel. This is about um, God sending his son to kind of unlock a way for God to bring us in again and to make us so utterly and completely acceptable in his presence that all our life is settled. This is something that if you have this, this kind of status switch, and that's what a citizenship is, right? It's a status with many perks and responsibilities attached to it. So you have this deep, deep status of you are wel- have been welcomed into God's presence, which is the deepest need of humanity, is to have that alienation reconciled and rebuilt. And Jesus has done that for us. We are given that as a gift. That, you know, that's the message of the gospel that someone new comes in and says, what's Christianity all about? That's what it's about. You're given something right now. And then, you, and then you get to figure out, oh my gosh, how does this change everything in my life now that I have this huge treasure? Um, that's why, that when you have something that good and that real, that's why, that's why you might even venture to keep certain avenues open for difficulty to come, to come your way. You might even during the season of Lent or some other self-defined season choose 
to withdraw from something, abstain from something, give more money away, not do these comforting things. Why? Because you have something so good and you realize these things just, they just compete really with this amazing treasure you have. You realize how dangerous they are and you need times where they're taken away so that you can... Now God might do that to you. That's the involuntary struggle we just talked about. He might take some comforts away so that you realize the treasure you have. But if you really know that treasure, you start to look for ways for those comforts not to be as quite as entrenched in, in your security in life. I think you know, you, anybody can relate to the idea that you know, maybe one day you're sitting around and you're dreaming about, you saw, you saw some number on a, on a neon sign about how much the lottery winnings will be. You know, it, it hasn't everybody, maybe just me, hasn't everybody sat and, and thought like, oh my goodness, what that would do. Oh, and of course I'd give most of it away, but you know, think of the, you know, I could pay these bills and I could get this kind of house and I could live in this kind of place and all these troubles. Not, I could just kind of get rid of all these troubles, but then I could build all these new barricades to ensure that no new ones would come. It'd be wonderful. But if you, you know, that's a treasure, isn't it? But that's, if you're a person who knows the treasure of God and the citizenship that you have through Jesus, you'd, truthfully, you would say, no, 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 keep that treasure far from me. I know how dangerous that would be. I wouldn't know anything about God's treasure once that comes into my life. Almost with the, almost with the way, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, anybody, anybody? The way Gandalf refuses to be close to or touch that ring. Doesn't he refu- doesn't, I don't even think he touches the ring. I think that's his point. He wants to stay as far away. He knows as soon as he puts that on, or it holds it even, he knows what's going to happen. That's the intensity possible because of the gospel. Oh, no, no, keep something. How terrible that would be if I won the lottery. Oh, my gosh. Nothing could be worse for my sense of who God is and what I have. Crazy, crazy message. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's this incredible power to transform your life. And, and even if you're someone who opens up the Bible once in a while and looks into, you know, what, what does the Bible say about this issue in my life? Totally transform how you would go about that. How many times have you been a part of this, done it yourself, or seen other people trying to figure out what does the Bible say about this issue? And maybe, maybe they don't say it, but what, you're, what basically is being said is, what am I allowed to do? <laughs> and what, can I still actually have the amount of fun or happiness that I'm kind of pursuing anyway amidst the level of restrictions that might be placed because of this book? Get that sense, like, what, a, what is this going to allow me to do? What, is this going to get in the way too much of the happiness I'm pursuing? You know, how can this help me get what I want, in a sense? You know what the transformation looks like? It looks like opening this up and saying, how can I get more of God? Oh, there's some issue in your life? How can that issue open up the door to knowing God better in that issue? Guess what? You, you often get the opposite answer from the Bible, depending on which route you're, you're going to the Bible with. You look at an issue and say, okay, maybe this, the Bible says this about money, or this about sex, or this about you know, any number of things. If you look at that issue and look at those verses that maybe talk about that from a perspective of how is this restricting me versus how is this going to, a doorway to open up to know God better leads towards totally different conclusions and a different way of praying. And that's what I basically want to end with. I think this, this sermon is uh, rightfully filled with a lot of prayers that I've, that I've read from other people who have written things.
So here's another, another line, another verse from Leif Fisher. This is, this is, just hear these words. Hush our world's seductive voices, tempting us to stand alone. Save us from the siren voices calling us to trust our own. For those snared by earthly treasure, lured by false security, Jesus, true and only measure, spring the trap to set folk free. Spring the trap, the treasure trap. Are you still using the things of this world to build barricades, to keep trouble out? Or have you, in the utter peace and security of the gospel, of God's treasure, have you begun to let the walls down and have a sort of utter peace dominating your life? Hear this prayer. Um, Again, this is like the second half of the prayer of John Bailey that I read earlier. Just let this be what we close with, with this message. O Lord my God, he says, who dwellest in pure and blessed serenity beyond the reach of mortal pain, yet lookest down in unspeakable love and tenderness upon the sorrows of earth, give me grace, I beseech thee, to understand the meaning of such afflictions and disappointments as I myself am called upon to endure. Deliver me from all fretfulness, Let me be wise to draw from every dispensation of thy providence the lesson thou art minded to teach me. Give me a stout heart to bear my own burdens. Give me a willing heart to bear the burdens of others. Give me a believing heart to cast all burdens upon thee. Amen.